I want you to imagine that your name is Reuben. You're a Jewish believer who has embraced Jesus as the Messiah in the mid-60s AD or CE, whichever currency you prefer. You live in Rome and you used to have a good job working for one of your friends from the synagogue until you believed in Jesus. You lost your job, you moved to a poorer part of town, and now you eke out a living doing whatever you can, but you're living in poverty, trying to get food and money day to day. You haven't had a proper meal for several days, and the signs for Jesus followers in Rome aren't good. In fact, under Nero, they're going from bad to worse. You've been ostracised by your family. They will have nothing to do with you anymore as a despised Jesus believer. In fact, they think you're a cannibal um, because you eat flesh and blood as part of your worship. In fact, until you became a Jesus follower, life was a lot better for you, really. You had a relatively good job, reasonable home, the authorities left you alone, you worshipped at the synagogue week by week. And ever since Jews were allowed back into Rome, since Claudius died, Jewish people have been tolerated, although they're thought to be a little weird. But followers of Jesus aren't. There are rumours about you being cannibals because you talk about sharing the body and blood of Jesus. Nero's anti-Christian rhetoric is getting rather frightening. And the glorious ending that you anticipated with Jesus returning in glory hasn't happened. You've actually found reasons not to go along the last couple of Sundays. You really didn't like having to run the gauntlet of abuse you'd get on the way to the church gathering. And you're thinking of going back to the predictability of what you used to experience at the synagogue week by week. And maybe, just maybe, your family will accept you back and your old employer might even think about re-employing you. Then, one late afternoon after the market has closed, you're picking around in the debris in the marketplace looking for some overripe fruit or vegetables or some stale bread and you bump into Gaius, one of the leaders of the Hebrew Christians or Hebrew Jesus followers in Rome. Now, it's one of those awkward moments which you might have had in Sainsbury's, if you see me, where you think, I haven't been to church for three weeks, and there's Greg. What do I do to get out of his way? And then suddenly I appear around the corner you weren't expecting me to, and you have to talk to me. So you don't have time to get out of his way and he engages you in conversation. He tells you that a letter's just arrived and it's going to be read out on Sunday in the church gathering. He tells you it actually really makes sense of the situation you're all in and that it would be well worth coming along this weekend. Well, he didn't have weekends in Rome, but it would be well worth coming along to hear. He doesn't offer you better coffee or comfortable chairs or a multimedia presentation or free Wi-Fi, just a letter that's going to be read out. So on Sunday morning, you go along, and what you hear read out is what we now call the letter to the Hebrews. 
Now, all of that, of course, is fictitious, and you're quite free to dispute any part of it. But what I've tried to do is to paint a picture for you of the sort of situation that the letter to the Hebrews is trying to address. Okay? Those are the sort of people, I think, that this letter was written to. We don't know who wrote it. We don't actually know who it was addressed to, and it doesn't read like a letter, but more as a sermon. And in fact, it's more like a sermon with a bit of a greeting at the end. Um, So I'm going to look at a bit of background and what we can work out about it before looking just at the first few verses. And I'm only going to read, look at the first four verses this week. But if we simply, hopefully, that background that I've just given you just indicates that if we just read this as disconnected scripture out of context, we risk misunderstanding what it's all about. We risk treating it as a theological treatise, and a lot of people have got doctorates doing that, but we risk misunderstanding the nature of this letter which is actually desperately keen for the souls and the well-being of these believers, who I think are in Rome. Um, It carries a pastoral concern. This is not an exercise in academic theology, this letter. So, who's it addressed to? Well, it doesn't say. Some people say, therefore, we shouldn't speculate. But I think there are clues in the text and in history. I think there's an overwhelming case for it being sent to Rome. Nobody is named in this letter apart from Timothy in chapter 13, 23. Neither those receiving it nor those sending it. If you look at Paul's letters, they're full of names of people. So-and-so sends their greetings. I'm so glad I've got so-and-so with me. Um, Uh, and also anathema on so-and-so who's betrayed me. But Paul's letters have all sorts of names in them. This one doesn't. It's only got one name, as far as I can see, anyway. I might be wrong. Um, Why do you think that might be? Why do you think there might be no names in this letter? Sorry? Well done, Katrina. Don't want to incriminate anyone. They are going through a time of persecution, and if this letter falls into the wrong hands... They don't want people to get in trouble, apart from poor old Timothy, who's already in trouble anyway. And in fact, what it's telling us is that he's just got out of prison. So, you know, they must, someone, I don't know, I don't know whether the writer regarded Timothy as a bit disposable or not. But it's because there's persecution going on. If this letter falls into the wrong hands, they don't want anyone to get in trouble because of it. There are some other clues as well. In chapter 13 and verse 24, It says, those from Italy greet you. And there are only two people in Scripture who are ever described as being from Italy. Anyone know who they are? Nor did I until I looked it up the other day. Um, It's Priscilla and Aquila. Um, So they're described in Acts 18, verse 2, as being from Italy. And more specifically, they were in Rome at one point as well. So the people receiving this letter knew them, and there'd be no point sending their greetings if they weren't known by the recipients. Sorry, that's two other people who are mentioned apart from Timothy is Priscilla. No, it doesn't say those. It says those from Italy. It doesn't mention them. So the people receiving this letter knew them. So point one is this seems to be pointing to Priscilla and Aquila, who we know were, they came from Rome and had to leave Rome when Claudius chucked the... um, the Jewish people out. 
Secondly, leaders in the church were normally referred to elsewhere in the New Testament as elders or overseers. Here they're referred to as leaders. So you can blow a big raspberry to those Christians who go around saying the Bible doesn't talk about leaders. It does. Um, Sorry about that, just trying to make a point there. Um, But they're referred to as leaders. And two other early Christian documents use this term. And those documents both originated in Rome. So we know that leaders of the church were referred to in Rome as leaders, or hegumenoi, if you really want the word, um, rather than elders or overseers. And then thirdly, First Clement, which is one of the earliest Christian documents we have outside our Bible, quotes extensively from Hebrews, and it shows quite a heavy reliance on the letter to the Hebrews. We know that Clement was based in Rome, so the earliest use of this letter locates at least a very early copy of it in Rome, if not the idea that it was originally addressed to Rome. So I personally think there's a fairly overwhelming case for it being addressed to believers in Rome, which is why I use the narrative of what was going on in Rome, and I think what was going on in Rome fits what the letter is addressing well. So who wrote it? I'm not going to ask, because some poor soul will put their hand up and say, Paul... Uh, and be embarrassed in front of the whole church. And at some point, as we go through this series, I will talk about it and say, and Paul says, um, because it just, it happens every time I speak on this book. So for a long time, it was thought of as being from the Apostle Paul. But for anyone who's ever suffered and had to study Greek, they know that the Greek in Hebrews is nothing like the Greek in the rest of the New Testament. Um, When you learn Greek, you start off with John's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, and you move on to the other writings of John. The bits that you avoid are Luke, Hebrews, and uh, 1 and 2 Peter, because the the Greek in them is just in a different territory than the Greek in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, So, in fact, it's the most sophisticated Greek that we have in Hebrews, both in terms of grammar and vocabulary, in the whole of the New Testament. It's the sort of Greek that would have been written in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It's also written using quite sophisticated rhetoric, so logic and argument and um, using speech and language to, to persuade people, has quite sophisticated rhetoric and a deep, deep knowledge of the Old Testament. So, the author while they are a high-powered theological thinker, is also pastorally and personally concerned for these believers. And one thing we mustn't do when we read this stuff is to think of it just as being a theological treatise. It's not. This writer is concerned above all for these people who are discouraged, disheartened, and suffering in Rome. Now, several candidates are mentioned. Um, The only two who I think it could possibly be are Priscilla and Apollos. Uh, My money is on Apollos. Uh, As we know, he was a gifted speaker, um, well-educated. He was from the eastern part of the empire, and he had a profound understanding of the Old Testament. That's why I think it was Apollos who wrote this. You can take that or leave it. 
Um, but I think it perhaps helps us in, in understanding a bit. Um, but I won't go any further because, in a sense, actually, it really doesn't matter. Um, so when was it written? Well, again, one of the wonders of... If you have three... Theologians are a bit like um, economists. If you've got three theolo- uh, four theologians... Three the- start again. If you've got three theologians in a room, you've got four opinions... Um, but there's, again, considerable de- debate about when it was written because you can actually get a doctorate to try and come up with a new line on that. But I suspect it was written during the reign of Nero. The Jerusalem... So we've got a number of dates that kind of put hard barriers here. So the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD by the Romans. They laid siege to Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in 70 AD. That's why I think most of our New Testament was written before 70 AD because had it been written afterwards, I cannot see that they would not have mentioned that the temple had been destroyed. Um, So 70 AD, I think, is a kind of hard deadline at that end. Um, And the Jewish people were expelled from Rome by Claudius, the emperor Claudius, shortly after 49 AD, and they were only allowed back after he died in 54 AD. So, or CE, sorry, you're supposed to call it common era now, but anyway, AD or CE. So, this letter is written somewhere between 54 and 70. Um, According to chapter 12 and verse 4, they hadn't yet suffered martyrdom. Um, And we do know that Nero blamed Christians for the fire in Rome in 64 AD and he killed many of them. He actually set fire to them and used them, covered them in tar and set fire to them and used them as lights for his barbecue one night. Um, So that brings our kind of end date forward a bit, 64 AD. So we can probably place this letter around the early to mid-60s AD before Nero's persecution begins spreading Christian blood. And at this stage, Jews were tolerated in Rome but Christians were suffering low-level harassment and persecution, although they weren't being actively sought out and killed. So, what's this letter trying to do? Well, when we read it as a whole, it's seeking to encourage discouraged Jewish believers, probably, in my view, in Rome. It appears to suggest that these believers were discouraged and thinking they'd be better off going back to their Jewish roots, going back to the synagogue where the persecution would be less intense and life would be easier. It's seeking to demonstrate to them that Jesus is the fulfilment of the Jewish hope, that actually what they had before was not as good as what they have now, and that he's superior in every way to their old Jewish way of life. Now, one Greek word appears 12 times in the letter, and it's the key word for the whole letter. And it's translated, the problem is it's translated by different words in English, which I find a little frustrating. Um, It's translated as better, greater, or superior in the various places it occurs. I can remember when I first became a Christian, um, the, the first preaching series I can ever remember is actually one on Hebrews, and I can remember um, Pat Goodland, who was the minister, standing up in the pulpit and saying, the key word for Hebrews is better. I can still remember that, over 40 years later. Um, although I learn now that 
there was slightly more nuance to that statement than he maybe gave us credit for. He was, he was a great guy. He, I, sta- I stand here because of largely of his work. I'm not going to lose the plot here. But it makes it a bit difficult to pick up in our English translations. But this idea of better, superior, greater occurs throughout the book of Hebrews. The word keeps cropping up. So, as I've spent some time on the background, we're only going to look at the first four verses today, which Samuel is going to read to us. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Thank you, Samuel. might be short, but that is one very dense passage. Um, let's unpack it a bit. So, we, I don't think we have a clicker, so I will go like this, and Richard will then um, move things on. So, click. Very good. Um, the first bit, the first couple of verses, draw some contrasts. And they talk about how in the past, and it contrasts with in these days, So in the past, God spoke to us, it says, in many and various ways through the prophets. So that's in the past, God spoke through the prophets. But now, he has spoken to us in these days through Jesus, or through his son. In the past, it says, he spoke how often? Many times through the prophets, But there's an implication underlying that, that now he's spoken through Jesus and it's done. Um, So it's not that he will carry on speaking through Jesus in the sense of Jesus being there in the flesh. So in the past he spoke many times, now he's spoken through God's Son and it's a sense of it being complete. And then, I've covered that in both those ways, haven't I? So... There's this contrast set up immediately, which is why one of the reasons why I, I do think this book is saying, don't go back to what you used to have. This is far better. Persevere. Keep going. Be encouraged. So he talks about Jesus. Well, I'll come to that. And then in verses 3 and 4, um, let's, that's it. Um, let's go for the first one. Click. So, now he's spoken to us through his son. He's spoken through Jesus, this Jesus, who is the son of God. um, And he goes on to say, he just tells us a whole lot about Jesus here, which is one of the reasons I love it. This is all about Jesus. Um, uh, And we really miss out if we just, theologians use this passage as one of the classic passages on what they call Christology which makes it sound very uninteresting and very boring. But actually, this is about Jesus. This is telling us some incredible stuff about Jesus. 
Well, I get excited about it. So, first of all, it's saying he is the son of God. He is God's son. He hasn't spoken to us through some prophets who were sent along and who were a bit cranky and who did weird things and spoke in strange language. He has sent his son through whom he's spoken to us. So then he goes on to say that that son is the heir of everything. He's the one who inherits everything. The whole universe is his. He's the heir of all things. And he goes on again then to say that he is the creator of the universe. Everything was made through him. The whole shooting match was made through and by Jesus. He's the creator of the universe. Now, what he's trying to contrast here, and we'll get to some of that in a minute, is he's drawing a contrast between Jesus and Moses. Moses, in Jewish thinking, was the bee's knees, wasn't he? You know, he I won't try and use a comparative term, but you know, Moses was it. He was the one through whom the revelation came. He got the tablets. He was up on the mountain. He'd gotten through the Red Sea when there was no hope of it happening. But what he's saying is this. Jesus didn't just get him through the Red Sea, didn't just go up a mountain and meet with God. This Jesus created the whole thing. He is the creator of it, the heir of it. And then he goes on to say, click, that he is the radiance of God's glory. That actually out of this Jesus, the glory of God shines. When Moses came down from the mountain, the glory of God had kind of gone into him from outside and he shone a bit when he got down and it faded after a while. This Jesus, the radiance comes out of him and God's glory radiates out of him. So he's the radiance of God's glory. None of this is in my notes. Let's move on. Um, He is the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what God looks like, who do you need to look at? Jesus. He's the exact representation. And I think it is actually saying there that he is himself God. I think the verses that follow go on to say that as well. But he is the exact representation of his being. Jesus looks exactly like God, or God looks exactly like Jesus. And he goes on to say that he sustains all things by his powerful word. I don't think we spend enough time thinking about that statement. Actually, if Jesus were to stop sustaining me, I would cease to exist. If he ceased speaking that word, what would happen? Because he sustains everything by the power of his word. Everything is held up and kept going. Not like the Greek god Atlas who kind of carried the world around on his shoulders. But actually it's simply the power of Jesus' word that sustains everything. And then he goes on to say that he's the one who purified sin. After he purified our sin, he did what? He moved to the next one. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus 
is seated on a throne. He's sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. He's seated in majesty. He's ruling and reigning. And he will be doing that forever. And he is vastly superior to the angels. The the phrase it uses is that he he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So he is vastly superior to the angels. And this is a bit of a dig at their Jewish past. So what he's saying here is, in Jewish thinking of this era, the angels were very much the mediators of God's covenant. They were the ones who um, communicated between man and God. They were the ones through whom, in their thinking, Moses' covenant was communicated. So what Jesus is saying Sorry, not what Jesus is saying. At least I didn't say what Paul is saying. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that this Jesus is far above all that went before. He's far above Moses. He's far above the angels that you think were important in that and that you'd probably worship. He is far, far, far above all of that. He is vastly superior, and that's the first occurrence of that word. Um, Vastly superior to all of that. This Jesus is far above all of that, far superior, far more important, far more significant. He's the one who made the whole thing. He's the one who keeps the whole thing going. He's the one who rules and reigns over the whole thing. And he's the one who is vastly superior and high above all of those angels, Moses, and all the stuff that you get excited about. That's what he's trying to say to these believers. So I'm going to try and bring that into land, otherwise I will end up in orbit if I carry on like this. Um, So what we're seeing is that Jesus is greater. This Jesus is extraordinary. Thank you. Glad someone thinks so. He is extraordinary. He's not just someone who's brought a new message. He's not just someone who was a good moral teacher. He is the one who created the whole thing sustains the whole thing, sits on a throne at the right hand of God, ruling over the whole thing. And he's the one who is far and above all rule and all authority. He's the creator and the sustainer. He's special, and not in our 21st century meaning of the word. Nowadays, when we say someone's special, we often have a slightly different meaning. He is extraordinary and extraordinarily greater than anyone and anything else. So the writer to the Hebrews here doesn't begin this letter with, you know, give my best wishes to Flo and Myrtle and Maud um, and Fred and John and whoever else send their greetings. The writer to the Hebrews here goes straight in, doesn't he or she, with this statement that, just think about this Jesus. You know, in the old days, God spoke this way through the prophets. But now, he's spoken through this Jesus, who is, and I've said it, I won't say it all again, but he's all of those things that we've got up on the board there. He's all of that. Why on earth, the writer is trying to say to these people, why on earth would you want to go back to something that was mediated by angels, 
that was just not the fulfillment. This one, this Jesus, is the fulfillment of all that came before. He's the one who gives meaning to all that came before. Why would you want to go back to that, is what he or she is saying to these believers probably in Rome. Don't be discouraged, because this Jesus is so much greater. And I think this whole message of this letter to the Hebrews is, you might be discouraged, it might be difficult, and that doesn't mean it's difficult because you or I have done something stupid, What it means here is it's difficult because you have actually made a stand and it has affected the way you live. Like that guy I described who's lost his job, lost his home, lost his family for the sake of being a Jesus follower. What he's saying is it's all worth it. It's worth the price of losing that in order to be a follower of this extraordinary Jesus who is up there by comparison with everybody else. It's worth it. And he's saying, don't be discouraged. Keep going. Keep keep keeping on, as they say. Um, That, I think, in the first four verses, is the central message of the entire book of Hebrews. So we can probably forget the rest of it. Um, But the, the entire message of this book is contained, I think, in those first four verses... Just think about this, Jesus, this extraordinary, wonderful, amazing, incredible man-God who, who created, who sustains, who rules, and who is far above all of it. And he's not far above it in the sense of being out of it, in, uh, if you want a technical term, a Gnostic sense. He's not far above it in terms of not being interested in it or involved in it. He's far above it because he rules over it, he reigns over it, and he sustains the whole thing. Uh, God is involved in his creation. And we can often get the idea he's beyond there. Actually, there's a curtain this thin that separates what I I can see of God from, from what I can see normally. So the message here is don't be discouraged. Keep on keeping on. And just think about this Jesus, this incredible Jesus. I'm going to close there, um, otherwise I'll start, well I have repeated myself anyway, but I'll start really repeating myself. Uh, I'll pray and hand over to you, Alistair. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, I want to thank you that Although there are things in there that we can debate about, we can argue about, and we can wonder about, and we can speculate about, actually, once we open it and are drawn into the story of what you're doing in Scripture, we see something amazing of of who Jesus is. And Lord, I want to pray for each of us that however discouraged we might be, however much opposition we might be facing, however difficult the coming week might be for some of us, I want to pray that you will help us to focus on this Jesus who created, who sustains, who rules and who reigns, who is far above all of those things that trouble us and cause us difficulty in our day-to-day lives. 
And Lord, will you help us to be men and women who live faithfully before you in the light of that this week?